Hello, and welcome to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most interesting, intelligent and innovative radio station. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and this week I'm talking to English-based Mexican author Chloe Aridius about her personal and creative relationship with the English-born and Mexican-based surrealist novelist and artist Leonora Carrington. Chloe was born in New York and grew up in Mexico and the Netherlands, where her father, the Mexican poet Homero Aridius, worked as an ambassador. She studied at Harvard and Oxford, where she completed a PhD in 19th century French poetry and magic, publishing a set of essays on the subject in 2005. Four years later, she published her first novel, Book of Clouds, via Chateau and Windus in the UK, which won the Prix de Première Romaine Étrangère in France. Her second novel, Asunder, came out in 2013. She was also a co-curator of Tate Liverpool's Leonora Carrington exhibition in 2015. Most recently, she has been the star of Josh Opinionese's genre-bending psychological thriller Female Human Animal, which grew out of that Tate exhibition and takes in Chloe's relationship with Leonora Carrington, as well as several figures from London's contemporary art world. Full disclosure, that includes me. More on that later in the show. Her next novel, Sea Monsters, is published by Chatter and Windus in February next year. Chloe, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Uh, so we're going to open the show today um, a slightly different way to usual. Um, Chloe is going to read an A to Z of Leonora Carrington that she compiled from her kind of memories of meeting Leonora in Mexico in the sort of last 20 years of Leonora Carrington's life. And that's mm-hmm. going to set up a lot of the themes for discussion in today's programme. So, Chloe, if you'd like to, uh, to, to take us away. Thank you, Juliet. Yeah, so these are memories, mostly in quotes, that I gathered over years of visits to her home. A. Ambidextrous. Leonora could write and paint with both hands at once, forwards and backwards. Yes, I'm ambidextrous, like madmen, she once said. B. Bullfighting. Horrific. It's a disgusting, shameful demonstration of human stupidity and cruelty. Horrible. I was once put out at a bullfight. I got up and clapped when the bull jumped over the thing and chased all the attendants around, and I just clapped and clapped, and they put me out. C. Cats. The last cats Leonora owned were Ramona and Monsieur, two green-eyed Siamese who followed her around the house. She wanted to get a dog too, but worried the cats would stop talking to her. D. Devils. I think they're very dangerous devils, and I think they're interesting devils, and I think they're probably very stupid devils. I think they're probably intelligent ones and angels and anything that has been invented. Hundreds, thousands of them all over the place. Well, I use the word invented when I mean seen. I don't know what invented means, really. Do you? E. England. Leonora would express nostalgia for England, but at the same time feel no desire to return. She missed the trees and the architecture rather than the people, since most of those she knew had passed away, and the eventful moments of her life had taken place abroad. F. Filters. Until her final days, Leonora smoked. Her choice of cigarette varied, but she always attached them to short plastic filters, which she would clean and reuse. G. Grey. More than anything, Leonora wore grey. 
Baggy gray trousers, long gray sweaters, gray shawls, gray turtlenecks, gray lace-up shoes. Occasionally she'd bring in a bit of purple, but my memory of her is distinctly in monochrome. H. Haunting. Leonora would sometimes mention a middle-aged woman in pink who would appear in different rooms. A few friends claimed to see the ghost as well, standing behind her. She was never scared, however. In previous times, her home had been a printing house, which is a not which is not a very sinister thing, she said. I, imagination. Nothing is created by the imagination. Imagination is a very mysterious force which we know very little about. We don't know if it creates anything. I think that things occur. Like, for instance, somebody once, someone once put, may have invented a cup because it was easier than putting your face into a river and lapping up the water. J, Edward James. Englishman in Mexico, patron of the Surrealists. Leonora was fond of him, despite saying he lacked respect for his friends and would wash his hands with her shampoo. K. The Kabbalah, the book Leonora would mention most often, important to her throughout her lifetime. L. Lapland. Often when would ask Leonora what place she most wanted to visit, she would say Lapland. She loved reindeer and wished the Laps would stop eating them. M. Manipulation. She once said that manipulation is what makes the great cosmic yogurt. N. Nagas, some of Leonore's favorite mythical creatures from Indian mythology, which featured in her paintings and sculptures. O. Orange Pico. Leonore would often ask me to bring her a tin of tea from England, especially Orange Pico. She also loved PG Tips, in her words, bog-standard English tea, and said she much preferred the, to fancy teas. Whenever I brought her some PG tips, she would keep them under lock and key so that no one else would use it. Cacher la boîte de PG tips, she would often say. P, painting. I rarely paint images from dreams. Images occur just like that. They occur from something that is further away from my consciousness. But any painter would tell you that. Q, quel désir d'extravagance were André Breton's words upon first seeing her paintings in Paris when Leonora was 20. R, Roma. Colonia Roma was a neighborhood in Mexico City where she lived since the 1940s. Over the decades, it underwent an enormous transformation. Across the street from her house lay the debris of a collapsed building, a victim of the earthquake of 1985, which housed a growing community of cats and homeless people. Leonora would call it a garden of, a garden of scorpions. S. Spiritism. Leonora could see through the hocus pocus hocus-pocus of people who claim to have supernatural powers. She once played a trick on a very serious ex-Nazi with a thick German accent who held a seance. She brought along one of her sons, and before the session, they attached a small instrument to the bottom of the table. It made metallic noises whenever it was pulled by a string. Everyone sat down. After a while, Lenore began to grow bored and decided to play a trick on the ex-Nazi. She or her son pulled the string, and noises were heard coming from beneath the table. Leonora remarked, I think there's someone there. So the ex-Nazi asked, who are you? And she replied, I think it's a horse. The man stood and tipped the table over to reveal the hidden instrument and never spoke to Leonora again. T, time. I don't need to kill time. It's killing me, was Leonora's answer when I asked whether she played chess. University of Contraception. Leonora's idea, she would often complain there were too many people in the world and wish they would establish such a university. V, Remedios Barro, feline-faced Spanish painter, one of Leonora's closest female friends with whom she shared a love of cats. 
W. Weiss, and Emerico Weiss, also known as Chiki, was a Hungarian photographer to whom Leonora was married for over 50 years, largely in silence. X. Zanax, which is called Tafil in Mexico. Leonora would take half a tablet every night for sleep and anxiety. The darkness would set in by late afternoon, she said. Why, Yeti, Leonora's final pet, a small white hyperactive Maltese for whom she had tremendous affection. Her dentist gave uh, Yeti to her. Z, zoology. Oh, sorry, here you say Z. <laughs> Z, zoology. Leonora adored animals, mythical and real. I draw completely from my mind. Well, I don't know if it's my mind, but if I'm drawing an animal like a cat, I'd like to draw it from life. So, <laughs> Chloe, thank you so much. Uh, that's a really nice and gentle and beautiful way, I think, of introducing a lot of Leonora Carrington's key themes and concerns and also uh, kind of crucial crucial moments in her life. I want to, for any listeners who are not familiar with Leonora Carrington, obviously you've just had a, a very impressionistic take on, on her life and work, but I want to just maybe fill in a few of the gaps now, uh, especially from her early life. Um, Leonora Carrington uh, knew, knew Chloe in Mexico in the 90s and noughties and she died in 2010 at the age of I think 94 mm -hmm. she was one of the last living surrealists mm -hmm. but her life began in uh, Chorley in Lancashire in 1917 where she was born her father was a wealthy textile manufacturer and her Irish mother was the daughter of a country doctor um, Leonora grew up with a nanny at a country house called Crookie Hall in Cockerham in Lancashire until she was 10 and she went to uh, and was expelled from two convent schools and eventually was sent away to Florence to attend Mrs Penrose's Academy of Arts um, where, of course, she came into contact with very different surroundings, well away from the English propertied class that she was used to. Um, of course, Mrs Penrose was part of the um, English Surrealist uh, family, and um, Surrealism made a big impression on Leonora Carrington. She saw her first Surrealist painting in 1927 at the Left Bank Gallery in Paris um, during the first few years of the uh, emergence of the Surrealist movement in poetry and literature and painting. Now, her father hated art and artists. He's quoted in the introduction to a Virago volume of Carrington's short stories and the introduction's written by Marina Warner. And um, Warner quotes Leonora Carrington's father's saying that he thought painting was horrible and idiotic. And he said that you didn't do art if you did, you were either poor or homosexual, which was more or less the same source of crime. Uh, Carrington, um, for her part, basically referred to him as being like a mafioso boss, um, you know, kind of stern, stern patriarch. And his kind of hard-headed realism contrasted quite sharply with her mother's sort of habit of making up sort of fantastical stories. And I think both of these things made a big impression on Leonora Carrington. Uh, certainly she, she sort of rejected the sort of upper-class life that she was being prepared for. You know, at her debutante ball, which um, there's a short story of hers called The Debutante, which um, is the title story of the most recent issue of her short stories, The Debutante and Other Stories from Silver Press. Uh, but she was taken to her debutante ball 
and spent her whole night reading Isla Singarza by Aldous Huxley when she was supposed to be, I don't know, finding a husband or something. And more and more she rejected the kind of world that she was being set up to enter. She got into the English surrealist scene via Herbert Reed, the art critic, um, and the 1936 International Surrealist Exhibition at the Burlington Gallery in London, which took place when she was 18 or 19. Now, this exhibition was quite famous. It made quite a big impression across Europe. Uh, Salvador Dali was there, Dylan Thomas, uh, many others. Um, Carrington wasn't really that impressed with the English Surrealist movement as a whole, uh, to be honest. Um, Several things about the English Surrealism movement kind of stand out. I mean, firstly, a lot of the people who looked like they were going to be key figures in the English Surrealist movement were were very young. Uh, One of them was the poet David Gascoigne, who got involved with Surrealism when he was just 16. He wrote a short survey of Surrealism, which he published in the mid-30s. And by the time he turned 20, he'd more or less given up Surrealism after writing a short volume of Surrealist poems called Man's Life is This Meat. Uh, Another um, person in the orbit was a Yorkshire poet called Hugh Sykes Davis, who only wrote a handful of poems, but he wrote Britain's first Surrealist novel, Petron, in 1935. And this has nothing of the kind of Marxism of a lot of um, French Surrealist writers and European painters, It doesn't even have that much of their engagement with Freud. Uh, Davis conceived of surrealism as being rooted in the kind of romantic tradition, Shelley, Coleridge, Byron, and so on. Uh, But also in figures like uh, Lewis Carroll, Edward Lear, and Beatrix Potter, um, with whom I think Leonora Carrington also had some affinity. Definitely. And, and, well, Lewis Carroll was her favourite writer, but she would often quote... The Jabberwocky, tale of my mother, they would recite it, and Edward Lear. But she knew the whole swaths of both Lear and Carol by heart. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of these authors, like I said, didn't really stick with surrealism. Like Charles Madge, uh, for example, ended up feeding into the mass observation movement. Humphrey Jennings was in their orbit and he ended up making documentaries. Hugh Sykes Davis became more of a critic. Gascoigne started writing more kind of religious poetry. And actually a lot of the key figures in the English Surrealist movement um, ended up being uh, emigres from other countries, the Belgian poet E.L.T. Meesens and the Italian writer Tony Del Renzio. And, uh, of course, they became great rivals and split from each other. Um, So really, I think the main long-term thing that Carrington took from this exhibition was the Herbert Reed book on Surrealism. Uh, On its cover, it had Max Ernst painting Two Children Menaced by Nightingale, Uh, Leonora Carrington loved this painting um, and she wanted to meet Max Ernst as a result, uh, which she did uh, the following year, 1937, via the architect Erno Goldfinger. Um, At this point, she was studying at the Amadei Osenfant Academy, but she decided to move to Paris with Max Ernst. uh, And Max Ernst's first wife, Marie Berthe Orant, was kind of understandably not very happy. So they moved south to Provence in 1937. Um, Now, Max Ernst uh, encouraged Leonora to concentrate on writing and um, Marina Warner describes the sort of motifs in both her art and her writing as 
regular things that occur, including horse-headed figures, journeys through craggy and forested landscapes out of the fairy tale reading of her youth, main-headed young women and emaciated ghouls. Now, Warner speculates that Ernst encouraged Carrington to write rather than paint, perhaps, she says, so that he, Ernst, could annex her stories more fruitfully. And certainly a lot of his works of the period incorporate a lot of those motifs that Carrington was working with. So Carrington did write a lot of short stories at this time. A lot of them are written in France, some of them in English, some of them in French. Uh, certainly they contrast markedly with the French surrealist writing, um, which, yeah, like I said earlier, often drew on kind of Marx and Freud, which I think her writing didn't mm. really. Um, you know, the surrealists themselves had a very strange and often quite unsettling and even unpleasant attitude to women. Uh, they idolised, for example, the child poet Giselle Prasinos, who was just baffled by their attention. Um, they also published a volume of poetry um, in celebration of Violet Nazier, uh, excuse my terrible French pronunciation. Um, Violet Nazier was a young French woman who murdered her aunt after being forbidden to go to a party. Of course, they also lionised the hysterics of um, Jean Martin Charcot and others from the 19th century. Um, and, you know, you read the surrealist uh, novels such as Bresson's Nadia, and there's often a celebration of this kind of convulsive beauty. Um, obviously, moving to France in the late 30s, uh, they they were living together in the south of France not long before the Nazi invasion, uh, at which point Max Ernst was arrested. Um, Carrington ended up fleeing to Spain. Um, she had a breakdown. She was hospitalised on her parents' orders. Uh, she had convulsive therapy, was given hard drugs. Uh, and she wrote a memoir about this called Down Below, uh, documenting her experiences. Uh, in this, she was encouraged by Andre Breton, who, of course, had this fixation on this figure of the the mad woman. Um, again, Marina Warner's take on this is quite interesting. Um, she compares Leonora Carrington to Mary Shelley, who, Warner says, also fantasised improbable things and managed to survive romanticism. Carrington, says Warner, survived being cast to perform the role of the marvellous erotic and farouche child. Um, Max Ernst ended up uh, in the US where he ended up marrying Peggy Guggenheim uh, Carrington went to Mexico via Lisbon and spent the rest of her life moving between there and, and New York uh, so Chloe I'd like to bring you back in at this point maybe we can talk about how you met Leonora Carrington in, in Mexico it was in the early 90s and, um, and one Saturday afternoon and we went to the house of, there was a wonderful doctor named Teodoro Cesarman, who was doctor to almost all the Mexican writers and artists, um, just like there was one dentist named Isaac Masri, both Jewish, who, were, who was, again, um, in return for books or paintings, would, would never charge his patients, and um, everyone would donate what they could. Um, so we went to Teodoro Cesarman's house for lunch one Saturday, and and Leonora was sitting there, and we immediately hit it off. And she said, "Come for tea tomorrow." Um, so so the next Sunday afternoon we went to tea, and then it became a ritual. Almost every Sunday would go to her house for tea after lunch, and if we arrived late, say half an hour late, because in Mexico City because of the traffic, um, one never knows what time one's going to arrive. She would say, "You've stolen half an hour of my life." <laughs> In waiting, 
she was still very punctual. But um, and so over the decades, and it became a ritual Sunday afternoon tea at her house. And well, my parents went every Sunday, and I would go when I was visiting home. So at least two or th- two or three times a year um, when I was in Mexico, and. She would always ask me to bring things for her and ask me for news from England. (laughs) Yeah. um, I mean, reading some of your work and reading a lot of uh, Leonora Carrington's short stories, which, like I said, have been collected kind of several times now, um, you know, I see some affinities between your work and hers. I mean, certainly you, um, you both have an interest in kind of animals and myths. Uh, And Leonora Carrington had a a strong interest in alchemy and horoscopes, divination, magic, sorcery. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit maybe about um, any conversations you had with her on these topics and maybe if you like how they fed into some of your work. Yeah. Um, Oh, yes, we always... She also felt very strongly about animals and, and man's treatment of the animal kingdom. So we would often speak about, um, well, uh, the animals in our own lives and then um, in, in the world beyond. But um, she would always, usually when we would arrive at her house, she would first ask my father to tell her about politics. And and then after a few minutes, ask him to stop because she was getting depressed and then return the subject to more personal things. So she always said, talked about, spoke about what she was reading, which was usually detective novels or Kabbalah. But um, in terms of our own work, well, when I knew her, I, I was still, I was working then, I guess, on my my doctorate on um, French poetry and magic shows. But more than anything, would speak about, um, well, as you can probably, you could probably gauge from the A to Z, she, for her, the imagination and any sort of invention, she didn't distinguish, she said things just happened or she would see them. It wasn't a question of distinguishing between anything that was somehow wrought or brought into existence by some kind of intellectual endeavor that somehow things just happened, which was, of course, a very surrealist way, just an automatic kind of um, creative drive. And um, so she was tremendously inspiring in that way when when I was working on, when I was thinking about um, the poets, uh, the French poets who lived day-to-day magic and sort of coded, like Nerval, who coded, who went to the city coding um, urban features and what he saw. But um, there's also, with Leonora very much, and it's only something in hindsight that I saw with once I began writing uh, fiction, was this this cohabitation, the coexistence between the uh, domestic and the fantastical, or the quotidian and the fantastical, which um, in her stories, again, often it's very domestic or quotidian or almost banal settings and suddenly it's the eruption of some fantastical presence or a feral spirit and um, and when I started writing my fiction um, again not not on an entirely conscious level but there was always something fantastical I felt in whatever setting I was setting out to um, put down to paper but um but it was also just interesting. It was very much a, an intergenerational friendship. So, and I was quite timid. So, it was much more Leonora speaking, and occasionally she'd ask questions. And when I was living in Berlin, she'd say, "Why are you living in Berlin?" 
Oh, sorry. And, um, but more than anything, she loved to tell us what she was reading, and she never liked to talk about her work at the time. And she was also very... She was also quite resistant to any kind of interpretation of her work. So one had to be very careful how one formulated any questions, even saying, well, what inspired you at the time, or how did you come to paint this or write that? So... Yeah, I mean, she she certainly... Um, I'm more familiar with her writing than her painting, but mm. I do find her writing feels quite resistant to analysis for some of the reasons you've mentioned. Um, they don't sort of invite, you know, this kind of Freudian Marxist reading that a lot mm. of the French male surrealists mm-hmm. invite, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you say, they, they have this kind of this fairy tale quality to them. This, I mean, they're not, they're not children's stories or they're not just children's stories. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, but they have that sort of, they have that kind of resilience against kind of interpretation. Yeah. Um, I think. I mean, there are kind of recurring symbols and motifs, as we've already talked about. But um, I remember when I was reading that collection and revisiting her stories, um, I was very struck by uh, the overriding theme for me was freedom and freedom from constraints, social, cultural, um, even taxonomical and. And um, and a fluidity between species and um, and how the human species, whenever it seemed to appear in the stories, would somehow disrupt any kind of harmony or contaminate the natural world. Um, where hunters or um, an overpowering father, but almost any human intrusion seemed to lead to some kind of sorrow or destruction. And then almost every story inhabited was is inhabited by a feral spirit. Um, Wild animals of the forest, and who are usually the most majestic and stately. And, um. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Mexico, I think, was an interesting place for her to to live and work. Um, you know, Mexico held real fascination for the surrealists. You know, Andre Breton visited in nineteen thirty eight, and he was really excited by what he called its cult of the dead and the art of the fantastical mm. and its kind of astonishing landscapes. Mm. Uh, we mentioned earlier um Leonora Carrington's one of her closest friends, the painter Remedios Varro, mm-hmm. who married um Breton's, I think probably closest com- companion or at least the person he kicked out of the surrealist group last, <laughs> uh the French poet Benjamin Perret. Mm-hmm. Um, Perret was also a kind of committed communist, uh, as was Breton. And um, Mexico also, um, you know, with its kind of revolutionary traditions, uh, had a lot of appeal for for communist artists and writers and filmmakers. Obviously, famously, um, Sergei Eisenstein had his catastrophic attempts at making Viva Mexico (laughs) there in the early 30s, which, if you have to watch it, a documented in the not particularly good Peter Greenaway film, um, Eisenstein Juan Añato. Um, but, you know, Leonora Carrington sort of found herself moving in artistic circles with Octavio Paz, uh, Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. And I wondered if you um, had any thoughts or were able to talk to um, talk to us about how, how this change of, of circle kind of affected her work at all. Well, I think after... Uh, I think it was very exciting for Leonora to arrive at a place where the country offered such tremendous... And, and the country, Mexico itself, and all its landscapes and ancient civilizations, um, there was so much just handed on a plate. 
and um, and that slowly those landscapes and mythologies very much became slowly well not slowly um, rather quickly entered um, her painting and tapestries and, but it's also very exciting for her to arrive at a place where there's such a thriving and dynamic emigrate community and she embarked on also which allowed a lot of experimentation but also collaboration and so um, uh, making works with um, well with, well with Remedio they came up they came up with recipes and cookbooks and um, and collaborations of a sort, but didn't have, didn't have a maybe lasting um, uh, result. But um, but it was a time of great experimentation, also. So she and just she was so inspired by the conversation about the work others were making. Um, but then she made yeah prints, sculpture, tapestries. Um, even little, with even little um, moon figures in doll bed, the dollhouse, she, and um, photographs, and so, um, and been living in a new language too, which she slowly learned. Even though with Chiki, with her husband, to the end of their lives, they only spoke French together, a very old-fashioned French. But um, yeah, but I think for her it was. Tremendous input inflow. Well, I think this really speaks to yeah. the kind of incredible cosmopolitanism of her life and and her work. I mm-hmm. mean, yes, obviously you have this uh, first kind of childhood in um, in northern England, mm-hmm. uh, but then these studies in uh, in Italy in in Florence, and then the time she spends in France, time she spends in Mexico and New York, uh, and. You know, something really astonishing about Leonora Carrington is the sheer number of connections she made with people from from all over the world. I mean, you've mentioned her um, her husband, Chiki. Um, it was uh, a very interesting story also. Yeah. He was Robert Gappa's darkroom manager. Um, and legend has it because, well, it's almost certainly true, even though every now and then someone questions it, but that... That um, that as war was breaking out, Chiki and Robert Kappa they they went by foot from Budapest to Paris, and that Chiki was carrying all his negatives, and then they went astray for a while, and then reappeared under the bed of a of a form of the former diplomat in Mexico. But um, but Chiki's whole family was um, uh, vanished. Uh, was killed in the Holocaust, and so he was very much. He arrived in Mexico and and cut off all ties to the past. Never returned to Europe. Um, never wanted to speak about it much, and it was a kind of trauma that manifested itself in in unusual ways. And he would, but I remember towards the end of his life, he would sit. He would sit in his room watching a fuzzy, a snowy television with poor reception. But he would say that he'd see figures crossing the room speaking Hungarian. So somehow he returned to some very early past. Well, the, the Second World War had a, a huge effect on Carrington's kind of life. I mean, for a, 
uh, an artist and writer for whom kind of direct politics are, are nowhere near as visible in her work as a lot of her kind of even surrealist contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Second World War, of course, had a huge relationship, a mm-hmm. uh, huge effect on her life, you know, forcing her out of France, breaking her apart from from Max Ernst, contributing to this this breakdown that she had when she fled to Spain, um, taking her to Mexico and then, yeah, having a huge impact on on her husband as well. Um but I mean, she she wasn't a writer who or an artist who was greatly engaged with politics. Although mm. um, she had some interest in the relationship between kind of psychic and political freedom, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Um, I know that she left uh, Mexico in 1968 after the um, Tlatelolco. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> pronunciation is terrible. Tlatelolco massacre uh, when government troops opened fire on um, students and protesters. Uh, Ten days before the Summer the Olympics. Summer so, Olympics yeah. in Mexico in 68 and killed 600 of them. And she also, um, uh, that was when she went to New York, I believe. Is that right? Yes. And um, she would periodically come back to Mexico, but I think something in her relationship with the country sort of broke at that point. Mm-hmm. Although she did also work for the lim- women's liberation movement there in the in the 70s. And I think this was the point at which your father got to know her. Is that mm-hmm. right? He'd met her in Mexico, yeah, in the 70s, and then we were abroad for a while, so then we, we met her in the early 90s. But um, just a footnote to Tlaltelolcos, what emerged afterwards in um, Octavio Paz's archives once he died was that uh, Paz's first wife, Elena Garro, had denounced Leonora and many other artists and intellectuals to the government, um, to Diaz uh, Ordaz, the president's. Um, very authoritarian regime. But um, Garro, she said that several of the left-wing intellectuals had incited the students and blamed them for a massacre. So Leonora also felt, at the time, imperiled. And then her sons were adolescents. So she thought it was best to leave the country. And she would move between New York and um, Mexico City, I think, for the rest of her life. And, of course, your family were based across those two cities yeah. as well. Well, once she returned in the early 90s, she didn't travel much right. after. Yeah. Um, I mean, moving to Mexico, obviously, we talked earlier about how um, Max Ernst encouraged her to concentrate on writing. Um, how much did she sort of shift between writing, painting, and kind of the object making and kind of sculptural arts that you were talking about earlier? I think, well, towards the end of her life, she definitely focused primarily on sculpture and uh, would make small figures, which then she would take to the foundry, which she'd call the Great Alchemical Laboratory. And she worked with one man, um, I think his name is Miguel Orozco, I might be wrong, but... Um, and he would be the one responsible for transforming these little figures into these majestic, these extraordinary bronze sculptures, um, which she had, she'd keep in, she would, she'd hardly turn on any light, so they'd just be in the, these sculptures would be in the corners of her, looming in the corners of her house, in the dar- in darkness. But, um, so, she, yeah, she stopped writing, uh, she wasn't writing much, and then, um, nor painting. Occasionally she'd make a drawing in a book if, say, she was dedicating it to someone. But I think she definitely the last 10, 15 years, it was almost only sculpture. Yeah, I mean, the the sort of later years of her life, I think, are very interesting. You know, she was she was cast as um, 
as Marina Warner put it in her introduction to The Seventh Horse and Other Tales, as a holy and erotic nymph who uniquely knew by instinct certain delinquent mysteries which older men or old men could not reach without her help. That was how she was cast by like the Surrealist movement. But obviously she left those people long behind uh, and outlived pretty much all of them. Um, and even her novel The Hearing Trumpet from 1974 deals with ageing and the human body, a kind of spirit of sisterhood mm-hmm. that gives her some, I think, parallels with a figure like Claude Cahun, who she also long outlived. Um, I mean, Lenore always said she preferred the presence of women. Yeah. Yeah, and that's very clear in her writing. And I think the um, her interest in like female sexuality and creativity obviously set her apart from a lot of the other surrealist writers. Um, I mean, you get some of that in, in Claude Cahun, for example, but mm. um, very few other places in the surrealist movement for the reason that it was dominated by men. But, um, you know, Carrington yeah like lived lived into her 90s and kind of kept working pretty much all that time i wondered if you would maybe like to talk about how how she dealt with like aging in her work um and maybe what changed in her work as she as she kind of reached Mm. reached old age i don't know it's hard to answer that question because again in the sculptures they were um, fantastical creatures. Some had um, doors that would open into, onto small ovens, interior ovens. I guess all ovens are interior. But she would mostly, um, in the sculptures, it was, I don't know how one could read into um, those figures as an expression of aging. But maybe it was just a way of, well, a new way of dealing with material and giving shape to. I don't know. There, there was something I think that was a new kind of immediacy to to giving form, and the Gollum had always been one of her favorite um, figures in um, in Jewish mysticism. So I think she, um, I don't know. I always thought of it as some sort of uh, sort of spiritual Gollums, all her all her bronze sculptures, but. Apart, well, the hearing trumpet is, I think, the main answer to how she dealt with aging, probably. But she always, almost every single time we would visit her, she'd complain about growing old and and say that it wasn't a happy process. That said, I mean, she, she aged with tremendous dignity and, and smoked until the final month of her life and was defiant and irreverent even in the face of death and um, definitely didn't act like an old woman in any way. Um and you continue to kind of see her and know her at this point. Yeah, my parents saw her a month before she passed away in Mexico, and um, she was completely herself. And then uh, we were quite moved by um, something her one of her sons said that uh, her final her, her final words before she passed away was she was staring at a, a blank wall in the hospital, and. Her son, I think Gabby said, you know, what are you looking at, mother? And she said, you know, birds, the wall is full of blackbirds. And again, that bird of her childhood, somehow she returned to some more, a more English landscape and was seeing blackbirds. And, um, it certainly never left her. And even in some of her paintings, um, some neo-Gothic architecture in her paintings, and, and 
um, from the buildings of her childhood. She very much dwelled in England until the end, on some level. Okay, you're listening to Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm talking to the novelist Chloe Oridius about her personal and creative relationship with the artist and writer Leonora Carrington. Um, We've been talking a lot about um, sort of some of the locations and dislocations in Carrington's work and it's kind of interesting to hear you sort of suggest that psychically she was quite moored in her um, northern English kind of country Mm. upbringing even as she sort of travelled all over the world and met people from from all across the globe and became involved with so many different um, kind of cultural circles. I'd like to maybe just talk a little bit more about the relationship between art and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to add something to that final comment yeah. you made, which I was just remembering a very important quote of hers, which um, I think she said in French, which was, il faut faire une géographie personnelle. You know, um, one must create a personal geography. And so it's very much... So I think, um, just to add on, to, add to what you said, I think it was... It was so layered, her own sort of personal landscape and geography was so layered between England and Mexico and, and well, uh, the landscapes in between. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's, there's a very strange sense of place in a lot of writing, of a lot of her writing, I think. You know, I think you can really, you can definitely recognise this kind of English kind of upper class upbringing in some of her stories but also a kind of attempt to really sort of reject that or escape from it and not in the sort of visceral angry furious way of a lot of the surrealists but a much more yeah kind of i wouldn't say retreat into fantasy but but much more playfully and yeah yeah absolutely um and that's that's present in her painting as well yes Mm -hmm. um which I'm I'm not so familiar with. I wondered if you would maybe like to talk about some of the affinities between her painting and her writing. Um, mm. Again, to to just quote um, Marina Warner. I mean, this is talking about earlier in her life. Um, Warner talks about uh, Carrington's exhibitions with the Surrealist Group in Paris in 1937 and Amsterdam in 1938 and says that though most of the paintings have since been lost, their titles, such as What Shall We Do Tomorrow, Aunt Amelia, and The Silent Assassin, reveal their kinship with the complex of autobiography, invention, playfulness and mystery of the comic and the gruesome in the story she began writing at the same time. And I think those themes sort of carried on throughout her life, didn't they? Um, Across all the different media that she worked in. Mm -hmm. Um... And I wondered if you'd like to to maybe add anything about her um, her paintings in particular, because I know you co curated the uh, the exhibition in um, at Tate Liverpool a few years ago. Yes. Um, well, as in her stories, the, the paintings they're full of hybrids, and um, there's a whole bestiary of of hybrid creatures in them that all seem to they're all quite enigmatic and. Some of them have very almost oracular presence, and one feels if they're withholding some secret, some sort of secret knowledge. Um, and um, 
And what's also quite striking and, and something I became aware of, especially in the paintings uh, we had at, at the Tate, was how important ritual was and how um, whether it was tea drinking or religious rituals or some or pagan or or secret rituals wasn't clear was but many of the paintings it seemed like the figures were almost being interrupted mid ritual or having some commu- communication between them that wasn't um, uh, um, wasn't ever um, to be disclosed to the viewer but um so it's yeah very much the creatures and again um that sense even in the paintings there's a lot of the landscapes seem in a, um for instance and then we saw the daughter of the minotaur um they seem like landscapes in a state of informa- uh, transformation um and fluidity yeah i mean the the tate liverpool exhibition was very interesting it felt like a bit of landmark um landmark exhibition mm-hmm. because you know, Carrington maybe hasn't had the attention she's deserved in her homeland, partly because she spent so much of her mm. life away from it. She didn't always write in English. She sometimes wrote in French. I don't know. Did she write in Spanish at all? A, a few stories, yeah, and poems. So yeah. this kind of mixture of languages in, in her mm. work. And, you know, I don't feel her painting is particularly well known here. I've always thought the UK doesn't deal particularly well with people who work in more than one Field. I think there was mm. Carrington, another surrealist painter and writer, um, Ethel Cahoon, mm. both of whom worked across these different yeah. different fields. And, you know, so I feel Carrington is maybe better known here as a writer than as an artist. But um, And what we wanted very much in the... And also, she's been so defined by her biography, we wanted to try to release her from that a little and also draw attention to her very multifaceted practice. And so at Tate Liverpool... Um, we had well, we had paintings, tapestries, sculpture, um, costumes, and sets she did for film, um, and even photographs she'd posed for. But um, and we also honoring her own resistance to interpretation. We wanted we tried to structure the show and not make it too schematic, and so limit the amount of captions we had, and instead. Um, almost like say like a seance um, conjure her spirit through her words. So I chose um, I drew up a list of quotes from her that either that had emerged from conversations with her or else from her books and inter- other interviews with her. And then sat down with the curators with Francesco Manacorda, who was the artistic director of Tate Liverpool at the time, and Lauren Barnes, the assistant curator. And the, the three of us worked on the show. Um, and so we very much wanted, even the wanted the we, the whole structure of the exhibition was very much we tried to guide it in some way by her spirit, um, and yeah, using her own words. I mean, what was the what was the reaction to the show like? Um, you know, kind of critically or you know, in terms of the public. Well, unfortunately, not enough people go to Liverpool, so at, at moments. It's, it feels frustratingly ephemeral because it, it was in Liverpool and then there was never a catalogue. And so the people who did end up going, who didn't make the journey or, or who lived locally, um, all loved it and were extremely positive and, and indeed felt that it was long overdue to have... Uh, um, it, it wasn't a retrospective, but a, a very large work, because, I mean, exhibition of her work. Because since the early, I think it was 91, it, the Serpentine, there hadn't been... 
an exhibition of hers in the UK. Um, and um, um, yeah, so but but it was. I wish I really wish she had seen it because I think she would have been very happy. And then um, she was always very interested in labyrinths, as was Remedios Varo, of course, and that sense that that meaning is elusive and there's many different paths to it. And so, yeah, even in the show, we tried to somehow honor that. Well, well yeah, it's it's interesting. You you mentioned that there was no catalogue coming out of the. Tate Liverpool exhibition mm. it felt in some ways kind of frustratingly ephemeral mm-hmm. uh, there has been uh, one one piece of work that has come <laughs> out of, uh, of this exhibition uh, listeners if you're like interested in broadcasting and presenting radio programs that's that's called a segue and uh, <laughs> that's taking us into uh, the film that I mentioned at the top of the show female human animal uh, which is directed by Joshua Pinyanese and is um currently uh screening at festivals and i think it's going to have a uh, some sort of cinematic release and um, it will be on movie and it will be yeah. on movie yeah. yeah full disclosure chloe is the star of the film and uh, i am also in the film <laughs> playing uh, a version of myself being kind of pretentious and irritating in various kind of london art circles which is you know is, is true to life i think um can we talk a bit about how how this film grew out of the Tate Liverpool exhibition. Like, why why make a film out of that Leonora Carrington mm-hmm. show? Well, it, it, it's, it began with well, my working on the show and then Josh, who was a good friend of mine, um, was very intrigued. So he said, do you mind if I show up with a camera and document some of this? And then he began getting more and more ideas for a narrative. And so even though I've never acted in my life, apart from being a, what they call a highly featured extra in my sister's films, I said, well, sure, why not try? Try it out. And then, um, and then we suddenly embarked on something, on this project that gained momentum and Josh ended up writing a whole script and um, getting to Arts Council grants. And it was almost all non-actors like you and me, but then we had... Um, Mark Hoseman, who's from from the Volksbühne, so he flew over from Berlin a few times, and he plays a sinister tr- stranger who appears at the gallery. Um, but um, it was very much again in the spirit of experimentation, and this again um, in spirit with Leonora's own a complete hybrid and just um, very weird meeting of different energies and creative drives and. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's not an easy film to describe to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a kind of psycho thriller, I guess. That mm-hmm. yeah has kind of as a as a structure to its narrative, like you say, your um, kind of difficult <laughs> kind of romantic experience with the character that Mark Hoseman plays. Uh, also, your kind of um, engagements with sort of London art and literary circles. Uh, there's sort of scenes that come out of a book launch that you and I did together in 2015. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are scenes filmed at the Carrington Exhibition in Tate Liverpool, which sadly I was never able to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh also uses um, archive interviews with Leonora mm-hmm. Carrington that I, I guess were was sort of filmed around about the time that you would have you would have known her and bring mm-hmm. in some of the sort of things mm-hmm. that you would have spoken to her. 
And it's quite extraordinary how he found he found footage of her and talking about themes or somewhat interjecting in a way that seems so much like a Greek chorus commenting on what's happening in the film. A spectral presence, but who really feels to be hovering above the action. Yeah, I mean, certainly the film, uh, you know, owes something spiritually to Leonora Carrington. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, how much would you say that the sort of themes that we've been talking about in Carrington's work throughout the show, like how Mm -hmm. much would you say they come into the movie? Well, certainly the theme of hybridity again, because this film very much crosses genres and uh, stories and... um, it really does defy categorization. I also find it difficult to describe to people. But, um, and, um, on a more uh, uh, literal level, there's, well, no, actually, very important is also the title of the film, which is uh, Female Human Animal, which is, was an essay that Leonora wrote in 1970. Um, just as the second wave of feminism was sweeping the West. And it was very much about, um, again, the fluidity of self and of identity and escaping any kind of patriarchal stranglehold on culture and and she, and and labeling and just saying, I'm female human animal. Beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> but so, again, with the film, it, it's... Um, it, well, my cat is in it, but there are human feral spirits yeah i mean i did want to uh talk about talk about the cat that appears in the film you know him uh, well too i I know him very well i mean it was a very strange experience (laughs) for me watching the film because not only am i in it and obviously you're in it and our friendship is covered in the film to quite an extent but also a lot of the the film is shot in your house in your your apartment uh, and your cat Ludwig appears in the film quite a lot and of course in the film he's this very strange sort of slightly threatening uh, spectral <laughs> presence with this very threatening meow which of course you and I know is not his own meow and it was was dubbed dubbed Foley, over his yeah. meow a bit like uh, with Dave Prowse as Darth Vader in Star Wars um but, but you know, Ludwig emerges as one of the real kind of stars of the film. And I, I know that, you know, Leonora Carrington was, was very much uh, um, someone who, who loved cats and had, had kind of Siamese cats. In fact, that's one of the motifs through the film. I think it's one mm-hmm. of the things about Carrington that you talk about near the that's beginning. That's probably what she would have loved the most in the film is Ludwig. I think he's yeah. my, my favourite <laughs> thing in the film. Although, you know, he's, he's nowhere near as menacing and kind of strange and disturbing a presence for me because, you know, I've, like, cleaned out his litter tray. I'm not Shh. not scared of him. Um, <laughs> he won't be happy way. that you're mentioning that on public radio. <laughs> well, you know, here we are. It's a bit of demystification, I think. But, um, no, it's, um, you know, it's it's a very intriguing film, I think, in as much as I was able to, to have any critical distance from it. Mm. Um, I mean, listeners can can find it on movie very soon and um, and see what they think for themselves. But yeah, I mean, it's all shot on VHS, so it looks it looks quite striking. Um, and uh, and and yeah, the film will be in um, in in cinemas as as well. I know there's a a screening at the Rio Cinema in in Dalston. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you'll on be the speaking. October, so, yeah. I think we'll be speaking. Um, but but yeah, it, it feels like a kind of fitting tribute to your your friendship with with Leonora. Yeah, I think um, I think she would have approved of it. Yeah, and it's hard to amused. say, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, um, and and um, yeah, well, and uh, Josh has described the film as social serialism, which it is because it's on the one hand it adapts freely from reality, and then. Um, it's certainly got that kind of mixture of the quotidian, domestic, and uh, fantastical mm-hmm. that we, we talked about. In and the a Amora's rough documentary work. feel at moments. I think it starts out with a very rough documentary um, atmosphere, and then it veers into something strange and uncanny and um, and surreal. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think the new genre of social surrealism may be launched <laughs> with this film. <laughs> and that feels really really of a kinship with the English surrealist movement in particular, and not so much the kind of French French movement, but the English movement very much having that kind of something weird growing out of the domestic that's not necessarily Freudian, that's not tapping into kind of political radicalism, but, you know, has a sort of strangeness of the everyday to it. Exactly, yeah. Well, I think we will... Um, we will conclude there. Um, listeners, we will obviously, as usual, kind of tweet out links to a lot of the things referenced in the show. We will, of course, show you where you can find um, Female Human Animal, as well as a lot more of um, both Leonora Carrington and Chloe Eurydice's work. Um, Chloe, I'd like to thank you very much thank for joining you, me today and for talking about Leonora Carrington. I think she remains one of the most kind of intriguing and, uh, you know, kind of inventive and intelligent mm-hmm figures in kind of English modernist writing, one that certainly deserves um, a lot more attention. Um, So that's all from us here at Suite 212 uh, for this week. Uh, next week, uh, Tom Overton, uh, Tom Overton, I'm sorry, will be, uh, will be, um, will be hosting the show. Um, so I will be back with you in a couple of weeks. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>